Welcome to the Addiction Connection. We like to believe the opposite of addiction is actually connection, and we are going to attempt to educate you and possibly even entertain you while we navigate all topics addiction. Hi, I'm Dr. Kirk Devine. And I'm Dr. Heather Bell, and we both provide primary care and addiction services. It's our goal to help you learn more about the disease of addiction and its treatments. Welcome back. This would be our ninth Addiction Connection podcast. And today it's on the community impact of having a medication-assisted treatment program in that community. And of course we do. So some of the data is actually that we're going to talk about is actually from our community and our programs that we help run uh, through the Minnesota Department of Health and other communities. And then some are, you know, written by the ever-amazing Nora Vokal from NIDA because she is Nora Volkov. So we do have some articles that we're going to allude to as well, but we're going to start with talking about the mortality benefits, treatment retention for patients, as well as criminal justice, um, positive impacts to the criminal justice system when there is an MAT program, as well as um, obviously if you're not in jail, you're working. So how the employment benefits as well. So, All right. So let's talk a little bit about the decrease in mortality related to opioid uh, use disorder. And I think that uh, if you look first, there was actually a very interesting uh, study back in 2018 done in, done in Sweden. And they actually took a group of patients and in one group, they took 16 milligrams of buprenorphine daily. And in the other group, they had a six-day detoxification and then got placebo. So basically they were given some buprenorphine to taper them off of their opioid over a week. And then they were given something really was like a sugar pill, so they weren't on any type of MAT. I think that's what I said. And what occurred, yeah, and what occurred was honestly not surprising. You know, there was uh, there was a 25% failure rate with the patients who actually got 16 milligrams per day of buprenorphine, and there was a 100% failure rate with placebo. I think failure means they relapsed or, you know, they went back to using their drug of choice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And interesting, if you look at the patients who relapsed and, and left treatment, 20% of those patients died. So I think very obviously mortality is something we've got to think about a lot as we look at how we take care of this patient group. And this, although we said this was a Swedish study, it was really NIDA who released the publication for this, so the National Institute on Drug Abuse. So this is a well-known study out there. Um, and then if you look at the another study that they looked at, um, a study out of Boston, Boston Medical Center, um, in the Annals of Internal Medicine, they looked at the percentage of patients who have an initial overdose. So they're in the in the ER, they had an overdose, and then if they weren't given MAT or they weren't put on any kind of a medication-assisted treatment, within the first year, 5% of them subsequently overdosed and died within that next year. So, I mean, 5% doesn't seem like a ton, but really, these are young, healthy people who have a use, opioid use disorder. So for them to just die within a year, 5% of them, that's that's pretty significant. Yeah, and I mean, this was a big study. There was over 17,000 patients, and it was really done from 2012 to 2014. Sadly... It was uh, kind of the height of it all. Yeah, I mean, it's 62% males, and uh, 69% were less than 45 years of age in this study. So... Um, you know, really, a, a, again, it just shows us how important it is to get treatment to these patients when they present. And I think the bottom line for all of that is that 
they need to have access. Patients need access. And this is why having a buprenorphine clinic or program in a community, whether it's a super small community, it's a huge community, patients need to have that access. And, you know, one of the places that patients will sometimes present is, of course, the emergency department. And so emergency departments, primary care, those are the key areas. Um, and in a, another podcast coming up, we will talk a little bit about the whole emergency department and what the ERs can do and some of the studies that push to the what ER should do to kind of help with this epidemic. So now I think we're going to talk a little bit about treatment retention and buprenorphine. Correct? Correct. Well, you know, I think, uh, you know, the, the treatment retention numbers uh, really for buprenorphine as well as methadone, uh, there's been a lot of data over really a period of years. And that uh, if you even just with fixed doses of bup uh, slash naloxone, you know, we, we really have a much improved level of treatment retention compared to placebo. And I think that that just, I mean, I, I think we have to assume that if we give something to patients to help them with their withdrawal symptoms, that helps them with their cravings and their triggers, I think it's obvious, it's common sense that we're going to keep them in treatment longer. So then people, you mentioned methadone, might talk a little bit about the differences between buprenorphine and methadone. Now, a typical methadone program, especially for the first long time, you know, methadone clinics you go to daily to kind of pick up your daily dose of methadone. So if you look at initiation of one of the other, uh, patients will have a little bit more retention up front with the methadone program than they would for a buprenorphine because they are going there every day. And I know you and I both, when we have a new patient on buprenorphine, you know, we see them a couple times that first week and then weekly. We see them pretty frequently, but it's definitely not daily. And so at least initially, the the more frequently you can see the patient, that does kind of help keep them in the program. You know, interesting there in that meta, in the meta-analysis that had been done, they did show that higher doses seem to be more effective than lower doses. And I, I find it interesting that often I when I start patients on uh, buprenorphine in the outpatient, and they will go to a treatment center and they will decrease them right away. Mm-hmm. And then they will leave them at this lower dose. And uh, it's certainly, you know, we all do this a little bit differently. But in my my experience, I, it just feels like often you let the, you need to let those patients somewhat uh, stabilize. And I, I think that we should not be decreasing their doses so quickly. And I, and I think that the studies do show at higher doses people are retained. And I think that especially early on. So well, yeah, if they're having cravings and they're having triggers and their life is still a little bit of chaos, they're they're not gonna they're not going to stay on that medication when they could go back to for them what's their their easier would be going back to using, um, but when you look at the, again back to the differences between methadone and buprenorphine, those even in the earlier parts although methadone they retain patients better initially, um, the methadone group did have higher um, overdose rates, and I think that of course is because of the whole the how methadone versus buprenorphine work in the brain and methadone being a full agonist, meaning again, it acts just like heroin does. You can still use substances on top of it. Whereas early, especially in buprenorphine, um, there is that ceiling effect because it's that partial agonist. Yeah. So one of the other places in our community that we have really looked at uh, very carefully is the, the criminal justice system. And um, I think one of the things that when you look at what should be the gold standard and really the gold standard should be that in our criminal justice system, especially at the county jail level, uh, where patients frequently come in and out uh, with their opioid use disorder and some of the legal issues they might have, 
is that availability of being treated again when they show up, much like the ER. We want to get them the treatment there and get them out of their cycle. Well, and, you know, as far as like the jail, like you mentioned, I think it's important to realize that a county jail, the average length of stay for a person in a county jail is, you know, right around a week, if not even a little bit less. And so to really get them that help when they show up, because, you know, imagine using heroin and you go into jail within a day or so, you're going to start withdrawing. And if you're in jail for four more days, you're going to be sick for a lot of your time in jail. And what that does and the strain on the criminal justice system, especially in a small town community, is that patient or that person, that community member who's withdrawing is now babysat one-on-one because they're sick, they're vomiting, they're, they're making a mess, and they're in so much pain. It's just super inhumane. And so to be able to help them in that moment by giving them that buprenorphine, which will make them feel better within that hour, they can then go back to the general population and make everybody's lives a little bit less chaotic. Um, that was a little bit of a tangent. That was a tangent. That was because, a huge tangent. <laughs> but uh, but let me kind of bring it back just a little bit. I back. think I'm going to bring it back. Um, you know, one of the things we want to stop is that that cycle where they're in and out of jail. And it, and there's actually been research done on this. There was actually a, an article in the Illinois Criminal Justice Information Authority in 2017 that talked a little bit about research done on, on in a randomized controlled studies that if, if these studies went farther than three months, they showed that people, uh, that patients and uh, inmates that were on buprenorphine and naloxone, it was really as effective as methadone at decreasing opioid use and rearrest, increasing treatment retention, which we talked about, and that, in fact, inmates were more likely to report to continued community treatment upon release. And, in fact, there have been some studies that have shown that, that buprenorphine actually works better at and that when patients come out of uh, correctional facilities, more often buprenorphine patients will go to a treatment uh, facility uh, after the correctional facility uh, than they would if they were on methadone. So we really look at uh, buprenorphine as really a, a great way to, to kind of break this cycle of rearrest and, uh, again, that treatment retention that keeps them out of jail. Yeah, and to, to give a little bit of data to what you just said, the, the study that um, Kurt's referring to is this heroin-dependent men, if you took them and you randomized them to the methadone or the buprenorphine, um, the buprenorphine patients responded about half the time, whereas the methadone patients who were offered the methadone in the, in the correctional setting only responded to treatment 14% of the time when they got out of out of their incarceration time. So I think it's just, it's a huge thing. And, you know, kind of what we've done in our community is, we do. We do offer um, patients, you know, buprenorphine when they start withdrawing in our jail, but they do have that um, part of their release, the condition of their release is to then come right to the clinic to, to kind of keep them in the program and keep them um, moving forward and positive in their in their their desired road to recovery. Yeah, and interestingly, interestingly, some of these studies that have done been done with both methadone and buprenorphine in criminal justice systems uh, methadone in the criminal justice system is much more difficult to do, uh, just as it is, um, you know, when they get arrested if they're on methadone. It's sometimes very difficult to get that medication uh, into the jail. Uh, and I think we've had such great success in our own community and other communities that we've helped uh, getting buprenorphine into county jails. So I think there's a lot less barriers, and I'm not saying there's none. I was going to uh, say, they yeah. don't love it. Yeah, but but it works. Initially. Yeah. Um, you know, they don't, it is a controlled substance. And, you know, we did jail medicine when we were in residency, and, every, you know, anyone who's done jail medicine knows that you just don't love controlled substances in jail. 
Um, people always worry about uh, people cheeking medications or, you know, trying to save them or share them or, you know, divert them in jail. The one thing with buprenorphine, and this is one of the ways we were able to kind of convince our jail in our community to do this is, you know, the medication, of course, is taken sublingually or buccally. So you can't really cheek a medication when that's how it's used. Uh, and so the biggest barrier, I think, is is who pays for it and, and trying to convince your your county that, that paying for that medication is a necessary medication to have in that jail and that it should be treated like any other necessary medication because when patients do go into jail, they do lose their um, medical assistance. Yeah, I think inter- interestingly, this uh, this talk should be not too long. So I'm going to go off in the weeds for just a moment saying that uh, you talked about cost. And in our community, uh, we had actually won an award and got about $10,000, which we gave to our jail to use for buprenorphine when we started this program. And even after a couple of years, we've only used a couple of thousand dollars because, again, patients are are in and out of the jail very quickly. And so our job is both to start them when they come in, but also to continue their medications and, and again, to retain them in our treatment program despite legal issues. Because in our experience, the legal issues have become less and less and less. So we actually did a study on our patients looking at that to try to give our county decision makers, if you will, um, what are they called? The county commissioners. County commissioners, yes. We did a study with our patients since we took 80, like the first 80 patients we had had, and we'd asked all of our patients, well, how many days have you spent in jail prior to coming into our buprenorphine program? They spent, those 80 patients spent an average of 54 and a half days in jail or in prison before meeting us. We then followed those same 80 for a couple of years since they've been into our program, and we've been doing this program for almost four years now. And even with one of them who's still sitting in prison, like that data is still counting, but these 80 patients still only average about four days in jail after being in the program. So the, the recidivism numbers, I mean, you can't really argue with 54 down to four. You could argue with it. You could, but now legally... Federally, it's becoming a little bit more of an issue. Yeah, and I think it's only a matter of time. Um, there are there are some legal things going now where it's considered, you know, cruel and unusual punishment by An not eighth, giving people their medications. Eighth Amendment. So, so I, we expect at some point that this is going to find its way through the courts. And I think as a, a as a uh, state and as a country, we're going to end up probably maintaining these people on their medications while they're in jail or prison if they if they come in on them or if they truly require them for their disease. Well, in our first patient that went into jail that, you know, we talk about a lot, at least I talk about a lot because he was my patient, you know, they took him off his med saying, well, he's going to be in jail for the next three weeks on an old charge. This isn't a necessary medication. It's controlled substance. And I said, but he's going to get sick. That's not nice, blah, blah, blah. This is his disorder this is his his opioid use disorder is his actual diagnosis his medical condition and they said too bad well i mean now the government and the, the federal systems are starting to look at that and saying that yes this is a medical condition and, and you know stopping a person's um, medical assisted treatment going into jail is a deliberate indifference to a medical condition violating the americas with disability act and all of the above and lastly Lastly, we're so going to talk what, about one other thing. Yeah, and this is this is cool, and you'll have to tell your story about your patient who was doing so well with employment that you were able to to, to piggyback on the whole jail talk 
able to avoid a prison sentence to be able to work because during our programs, you know, these patients, you know, the one benefit to us, at least anecdotally, is that they're not having to go to a daily methadone program. They're able to work. You know, once they're doing really well in their program and we space them out to having to come only monthly, they're at work, you know, and then they come when it's, you know, come on their regular scheduled appointments locally so they're not driving forever and they go back to work. Yeah. And actually, I think our data, uh, we keep constant data on all of our patients, uh, now over 100 patients that we care for with opioid use disorder. And I think that uh, I'm trying to remember the latest number between the people retired or employed. Uh, it's got to be around... Was it 75, 80%? Yeah, just about. Yeah, and and it's it's amazing how many patients that we take care of who are actually retired. Uh, it is uh, We have a fair number of people in their later years uh, who are on buprenorphine. So I, I think anecdotally, you know, we uh, we feel like that uh, patients do better and can work more on buprenorphine. I think they, they have a little less fatigue, a little more uh, motivation. Uh, than some of the other methods, such as methadone. Well, that's not just what we think. Um, no, our patients, patients who've yeah, yeah. been on both, and they've kind of told us that as well. So so I think that, uh, you know, from my standpoint, really what I'm hoping for always with patients is to uh, get them back to their normal life. And I think employment is one of the biggest parts of that. And so it's something that we follow here at our clinic. And, and I think we really get good a lot of joy out of knowing that patients are back to work. Why don't you tell your story quickly? Well, there's a lot of stories. The dude that, you know, you oh. saved prison and now he's just on probation. Yeah, well, yeah, and I had, I had a guy who uh, actually had done so well. He'd been uh, off heroin for a couple of years, and he was going through the court uh, system, and it literally took 18 months uh, on a charge, uh, a possession charge that he had. From, like, a long time ago. Oh, a long time ago, you know, and, and he had actually gone through treatment. He had uh, really worked hard at... Uh, uh, getting his life back and was working full time, had a very supportive supportive family, and uh, when he was caught uh, with possession, he had a little more than he should have, uh, and and I think that uh, the charges he was going to get were really quite scary. I mean, you're talking about a you know anywhere from a five to ten year sentence for what he was looking for, and and I actually wrote the judge a letter and said I think you know this is a man who's changed his his situation. He's working. He's uh, got a supportive family. He's done, he's paid off as he had a lot of bills through the court system he had to pay and he'd paid all, all of those. And I said, wouldn't we all be served better if he, uh, if he just got a chance to continue working? And unfortunately for him, they gave him probation uh, for a long time. They gave him probation, but uh, he now has, even has a better job and he's making uh, much more money. Uh, and I think that, uh, you know, that's probably the best way to look at this. If we look at addiction as a disease, you know, does it do us any of us any good to put somebody in jail? And I say, I don't think so. I don't think so. Yeah, but get, get them a job. Just, I just love that story because it just shows, I think, promise and hope for moving forward and, you know, the, the communication and how important it is to have that communication across, you know, the silos, if you will, between medicine, criminal justice, and yeah. helping patients. And I think, too, you know, we, we, we have a nurse in our pod who is uh, one of our patients and uh, has changed her whole life and has jobs. And, and, uh, and so we really look at the potential of this uh, patient group, and, and uh, we love to see these kinds of things happening. And uh, are, there, are there failures? Yes, there always are. But uh, I think that uh, the majority of our patients do so well. It's uh, really what we want. Exactly. So now what I want to do is I want to kind of send out this podcast with a fun song from our in-house band, Battle Legs. 
And thanks you for listening this week, and we hope you listen next week. All right, why don't we send them out with Tecmo Super Bowl? I know there's no words, but it's just a super cool song. Perfect. All right, thanks again.